Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Vijay Boyapati, coder, economist, and libertarian. We talk about his history with the libertarian movement, how politics at a grassroots level works, and the incentives of politicians. Vijay also tells us about why some libertarians are not into Bitcoin and why some Bitcoiners are not into libertarianism. It's hard not to like Vijay when you talk to him. He's got a natural charisma and a deep understanding of things, which are hard to deny. Hearing his story of how he got into the Ron Paul campaign and subsequently learned the futility of the political process was pretty eye-opening. I hope you enjoy this interview. VJ, how's everything going? It's going great, Jimmy. It's good to speak to you again. Yeah, how is everything where you are? Like with COVID and everything. Yeah, it's a little crazy. Our state has been, Washington state has been locked down for almost a year and the lockdowns are getting even stricter. So it's tough. You know, we have three young kids and we have to spend a lot of time at home. Yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful things are going to improve next year. We'll see how it goes, but it's it's pretty tough right now. Mm. How do you feel about that? Like just the continuous <laughs> endless lockdown? <laughs> You know, I don't feel like it's data-based. It's not based on science. So it does feel like a little misplaced. You know, as a libertarian, I really feel like people should have the choice. Of course, there are some people who are probably pretty vulnerable to this disease and they should be protected and they should keep themselves safe. But when you apply it to everyone, I just think it's a little heavy-handed. I mean, for certain age groups, the risk is very, very low. So, for instance, for children, more children have died from the flu last year than from COVID this year. So, I just feel like it's a typical bureaucratic government solution, which is one size fits all. And they do this for everything. They do it for education. They do it for transportation. Anything the government gets involved in, it's one size fits all. So, that's what they're doing. They take the approach which is the least risky because they don't want to look bad. And it means that people who aren't even really at risk are forced to live a much more restricted lifestyle as well. Yeah. And you mentioned that you're libertarian and this is what this show is intended to be about. So can you tell us a little bit about when you became libertarian and you know why you think this way? Yeah, so to sort of go back a little bit in time, I'm from Australia originally, and my parents are from India. My dad moved to Australia to do his PhD before I was born, and he moved to Australia just a few years after they'd removed a policy which is known as the White Australia Policy. Only immigrants from Europe were allowed in. And I grew up in a country which still was, you know, fairly racist place to live. And it's an interesting experience as a kid who was Indian in heritage and was going to school. And I was like the only Indian kid at school. But I grew up as an Australian. I think like an Australian. My values are Australian. I like Australian sports. I like Australian food. So I went to school in Australia and I got my university education at the Australian National University. And I think I absorbed the values just through an osmosis that, you know, typically present at any university around the world, which are very sort of liberal values. But 
I didn't hold those values very strongly because I was doing a degree in science and I wasn't really exposed to, to that sort of thing very much. And when I came to the US, I would say I was probably, I would classify myself as a liberal, but someone who didn't really have strong convictions. And, you know, if you debated me on any point, I really wouldn't have a strong opinion. But then I eventually got a job at Google in the early 2000s and I came across the first libertarians that I'd ever met. There really isn't a sort of remnant of libertarians in Australia as there is in the US. So it was really interesting and refreshing to hear a different perspective. And I remember there was one libertarian, a good friend of mine, who first exposed me to Ayn Rand. And he gave me, it's funny to think about it now, but he gave me a VHS tape of Ayn Rand being interviewed by Phil Donahue in the 1970s. And I went home and I put it on and I was already interested in in the ideas. I'd been exposed to them a little bit, but I'd never heard Ayn Rand. And I watched the video by myself at home and it really felt like being hit by a bolt of lightning. It was the first time I had heard someone talk about politics and philosophy and economics in a way that made sense and was argued logically. And that's really, you know, that's as an engineer, that's how my brain works, is very receptive to hearing people talk about these ideas if they talked about them logically. But she was the first person to really lay out a philosophy of freedom in a step-by-step logical manner. And it blew my mind. It was an incredible feeling. And I was hooked. From that moment on, I was hooked. And I, I went down the rabbit hole. And I think for a while, I probably could have been called an objectivist. I thought Ayn Rand was amazing. My friend also gave me a VHS tape of Milton Friedman being interviewed by Phil Donahue. And that also blew my mind. And it sort of got me interested in economics. And after that, I sort of followed various threads. And I became interested in, well, is there any good criticisms of these people like Milton Friedman and Ayn Rand? And most of the criticisms I read were not very persuasive. They were of the Keynesian variety, sort of big government criticisms. And I just didn't feel like they were argued very logically or persuasively. But then I came across someone who really was pretty harsh to Milton Friedman, a guy called Murray Rothbard, who was an Austrian school economist. And that got me going down the Austrian rabbit hole. So it really was a progression from Ayn Rand to Milton Friedman to Murray Rothbard and the Austrians. And, you know, at the time, I really didn't know about the distinctions between different schools of economics or different schools of philosophy. I was just trying to figure it all out. And I would say I'm still an Austrian. I really subscribe to the Austrian School of Economics. And yeah, I think that's probably a good place to stop. That's a summary of how I came to Austrian economics and libertarianism in the beginning. Mm. And you got involved in sort of like libertarian politics a little bit. Can you tell us more about how you went down that road from, you know, sort of reading about it to actually campaigning? Like that's a pretty big step. Yeah, absolutely. So I was really interested in the early to mid 2000s in learning about libertarianism. And I read everything I could find on Austrian economics and, you know, read Milton Friedman's book, Free to Choose. I read everything I could get my hands on. You know, as I learned more, I was very skeptical. I became more and more skeptical that politics could ever produce anything useful or valuable 
and sort of looking at what politicians would say and how it wouldn't match what they did or that they would say that they had these high ideals but then they would do something really corrupt really sort of soured me on politics. But then always interested in politics but it sort of soured me on the effectiveness of politics in achieving good things in society. But I've been interested in politics a long time since I was a kid and I was watching the Republican debates in 2007 and came across this character, Ron Paul, and I was just so amazed. Who is this guy? He's standing up to the Republican establishment and saying extremely libertarian things that no one has ever said before on a political stage. Like, we should never have gone to war with Iraq. The Federal Reserve should not exist. We should go back to a gold standard and have sound money. The IRS should be abolished. The Department of Education should be abolished. He was saying these radical things that I'd never heard a politician say. And I was like, who is this guy? And I sort of learned that he was also influenced by the Austrian thinkers like Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard. And so I found out as much as I could about Ron Paul and then he, at the time, Google had this sort of lecture series for people who are presidential candidates to come and speak at Google. And Ron Paul was invited and he came and he had a packed audience. There's quite a few libertarians at Google. And I met him for the first time. And I remember when it was time for people to ask questions, I got up and I said, if I could write a blank check to you right now, I would write a blank check. I think what you're saying is incredible. I think it's incredibly important. And from that moment, I knew I want to do whatever it takes to help him get as far as he can. And so quickly thereafter, I quit my job at Google and decided that I wanted to campaign for Ron Paul in the 2008 election. Wow. So you actually quit your job at Google, which as anyone knows that if you started in the early 2000s, that's a very lucrative gig. And you went to campaign for Paul. So you had a lot of conviction there. What was campaigning for him like? I mean, it was one of the most exciting, interesting things I've done in my life. I still have very fond memories of it. But the funny thing is, even Ron thought I was a little bit crazy. He was like, are you sure you want to do this? He sort of tried to encourage me to go back and keep my job at Google. And I was like, no, I really want to do this. I think this is what you're doing is really important. And I thought at least briefly in my life, I thought there was a potential that these ideas could reach a mainstream audience through the political process. And so what happened was I quit my job and I had this vision for what I wanted to do. Like if you're familiar with US politics, there's this primary process where the two parties try and choose the candidate that they want to run for president. And the primary process sort of visits each of the states in the union and each state votes on who which candidate they want to be the candidate for each of the parties. And there are two small states in the beginning, and one of them is New Hampshire, which have a disproportionate impact because people look at the results and say, oh, the person who came first there is the leading candidate. And so that has an impact on the rest of the races. And New Hampshire is a very small state in the northeast of the U.S., And so I had this vision that maybe because it's a small state, I can get a bunch of volunteers to come to New Hampshire and we can knock on every single door in New Hampshire and tell everyone about Ron Paul and why he is so different, why he is such a great candidate for presidency. 
And that's what I wanted to do. And I, so I quit my job. I sort of posted on various bulletin boards and, and Ron Paul forums of what I was doing. And I said, I want to bring a thousand volunteers. I didn't end up bringing a thousand. I ended up bringing about 500 volunteers from around the country. I want to bring a thousand people to New Hampshire and I want to knock on every door and, and tell them about Ron Paul. And I had all these people volunteer and people drive across the country. There was one family that drove from Arizona all the way to New Hampshire to help me out, which is incredible, absolutely incredible that people would do that. They sort of picked up their entire lives, their children, everything, and, and came to New Hampshire to help me. I ended up helping to raise almost $2 million to help his campaign in one of the money bombs that sort of an online campaign to raise money that was pioneered back in 2007. And actually, it was Ron Paul's campaign that pioneered these money bombs. So I raised a bunch of money for him. I brought hundreds of volunteers. I housed hundreds of volunteers. I had to rent, I think it was 10 houses. Maybe it was a bit more than that, about 10 houses in New Hampshire. I went to Walmart and I cleared out every air mattress in Walmart in New Hampshire to get space for people to sleep on. And I met so many libertarians and so many people who are like-minded and who share the same values. It was honestly one of the coolest experiences of my life. And it didn't end up, we didn't end up having a huge impact in that election. And Ron Paul did not win the nomination, obviously. It, it went to John McCain. But I think it sort of what he did when he got up on the stage during those Republican debates is he exposed a lot of people to these ideas. And I think a lot of people were brought to libertarianism because of Ron Paul and because of his campaign. Mm. And what do you feel like you learned about politics from that experience? Because you kind of had an inside seat a little bit into what that's like. Yeah, I think what I learned is that grassroots politics doesn't really matter that much. It doesn't have much of an impact. What really matters are the bigger forces at play, like the media, what the media will do. So, for instance, in New Hampshire, Fox decided to exclude Ron Paul from the debate, which completely stripped him of the ability to reach people in New Hampshire and explain to them why his ideas were important. And that had a much, much bigger impact than what I was doing, which is, you know, trying to get out and explain to people why he was a great candidate. So I sort of became a lot more cynical after that campaign. I realized there were much more powerful forces than me as a grassroots activist trying to get a message out. And I sort of found it a little depressing for a while. But eventually I thought, you know, if I want to see the change that I would like to see in the world to a freer world, people with more individual liberty, the way to do it is through technology and not through politics, because it's really hard to make change in the political system. It's so inherently corrupt. It really attracts the worst people. Friedrich Hayek, the Nobel Prize winner in economics, had an article explaining why the worst get on top in politics. And it's really true. Ron Paul is an exception to the rule, a very exceptional person. There are very few people in Congress who have any, you know, strong moral values. They're all in it for the power. And so the system itself is inherently corrupt and it's really hard to get anything achieved in that system. It's controlled by very powerful special interests that will react very strongly against anyone who threatens those interests. So yeah, I became cynical. 
Or maybe another way of saying it is I became more realistic. And I thought, if I want to see change in the world, then I'm a computer scientist, then there's a better way. It's through technology. It's not through politics. Mm. And so what have you done since then to sort of put those ideals to work? So after the campaign, I, I did a bunch of startups and they weren't related to Bitcoin. I was just, you know, interested in being in the startup world and doing something small again. Because when I joined Google, it was still a startup. It was still a very small company. So I wanted to get back to the startup world. But around 2011, I was exposed to Bitcoin. I got my first Bitcoins from a friend who told me about it and said, hey, there's this new money. It's digital form of money and it's even better than gold. Why don't you check it out? And and so I got interested in Bitcoin and that's been an interest I've had and sort of it's become more a bigger and bigger passion of mine over the years. And really that's the one thing that I'm absolutely obsessed about now is Bitcoin and how Bitcoin is a technology which can bring the values that I really think are important and spread them around the world and make it possible for people to be much freer than they are without it. Hmm. Well, that brings up a question for me, because, you know, there are a lot of libertarians and libertarians do have more of a tendency to embrace Bitcoin. But there's also a lot of libertarians that absolutely refuse Bitcoin and are very much into gold instead. What's going on there? Why are they so resistant to Bitcoin? Yes, I think I've mentioned this once before, but and it's kind of a controversial thing to say in libertarian circles. So I just preface it with that. I think the problem originated with Murray Rothbard. And Murray Rothbard was, you know, one of the most prominent figures in the Austrian school of economics. And he was the first one to take the Miesian regression theorem, which is a theorem of economics, which tries to explain how does money get its original value? Because there was this problem of circularity that people had, which was money seems to get its value by the fact that it had value yesterday. But if it had value yesterday, why did it have value the day before? And economists were really puzzled by this. They didn't know how to figure this out. And Mises created this theory called the regression theorem, which is that money derives its value from the value it had yesterday. But if you go all the way back, if you regress all the way back in time, it gets its value from an original use value. And Murray Rothbard came along and he saw this theorem and he made it even stronger than Mises did. He said that the original value has to come from a commodity, like a real tangible physical good. And there's no other way that money can arise. And so when Bitcoin came around, a lot of Austrians said, well, this can never be money. This isn't a commodity. This never had any original use value. It was never used for jewelry. It was never used for digging holes or, you know, any, it didn't have any use value. And so I think the most influential Austrians sort of took this position because it was a position that Murray Rothbard had. And so this debate raged at least in the initial years of Bitcoin. I'm sure you probably remember there are a lot of people talking about it, people who are interested in the economics of Bitcoin. I think people have really, a lot of people in that community have really stuck with that. And I think it's a misunderstanding of money which associates it with physicality and it has to have some kind of intrinsic value. And it's a viewpoint of people like Peter Schiff that if you can't hold it and you can't touch it, then it can't really be real. So that's my view. I think this stems 
from a misunderstanding of a theorem, Mises's regression theorem. I think if Ludwig von Mises was around today, he would have said, no, I, that's not how you're supposed to interpret it. Murray Rothbard's interpretation is incorrect. But I think it's unfortunate misunderstanding or misapplication of that theorem. And I should say, by the way, that I'm a huge fan of Murray Rothbard. I think he's like one of the great libertarians in history. His primary skill, I think, was as a historian and a polemicist in explaining libertarian ideas. But as an economist, I think Mises was the much greater economist. He was the one who made groundbreaking theorems about money and about allocation of capital and about the business cycle and probably the most entrepreneurship yeah entrepreneurship probably the most important one i think is his theories on why socialism must fail because if you don't have a price function if you don't have the ability to know when things are expensive or when things are cheap you can't rationally allocate capital and so in the early 20s when it was very fashionable to think that socialism was going to take over the world and everyone, every nation was going to become a socialist nation. He said, no, this is impossible. This is literally economically impossible. If you implement socialism in your economy, you are going to have mass poverty, mass starvation, and the economy will collapse. And he saw this and laid out the theoretical reasons for it. So, yeah, there's a bit of a deviation, but I think Mises was like the great economist and Rothbard's talent was more as a historian. So, when he delved into economics, I think there were some mistakes that he made. Mm. That's an interesting perspective because for me, like, I can buy that. But at the same time, to me, it feels more like a lot of these libertarians that are sort of anti-Bitcoin. Their thought process is more, I want to hold on to gold. I don't want to be, you know, and I want to rationalize my love for gold. And then they go and find Rothbard's argument rather than the other way around. You know what I mean? Like it's not coming from principles that they already know and love. It's more a rationalization or a justification of something that they would do already. Yeah, that's an interesting theory. And I'm sure you're correct. There are certainly some people who are bag holders, (laughs) literally holding bags of gold, and who are afraid that Bitcoin represents a very disruptive technology to something that's part of their portfolio. And they don't want to see that part of their portfolio be, you know, reduced in value. But it's interesting, you know, I'm a gold bug myself, you know, becoming interested in Austrian economics, I was really pro hard money. And I was really interested in all of those ideas. And so I've had gold for a long time. I've owned gold since, you know, mid 2000s. And, and so I am, I call myself a reformed gold bug. When I first came across Bitcoin, and I got a few Bitcoins, I was like, oh, these kind of an insurance policy against my gold position. And now I kind of view it the other way around. I think gold is an insurance policy against my Bitcoin position because, you know, if something unforeseen happens and Bitcoin falters for some reason, which I think is incredibly unlikely now, then I still have some gold and gold has been valuable for a very long time. But in the beginning, when you know, there was still a lot of risk around Bitcoin and we didn't fully understand if the cryptography worked and the protocol worked. It was more like a risky angel investment or something like that, where it could easily go to zero. So, you know, I thought of it as like an insurance policy, but not something that I would bet the house on. Mm. Well, so I do want to talk about libertarians in general, because 
in a sense, their lack of embracing of Bitcoin. I mean, certainly a lot of younger libertarians have embraced Bitcoin, you know, whole hawk. But it's like the reason why I think the rationalization argument is very much, you know, true is that there's a lot of older libertarians that absolutely refuse. I mean, like this is the Ron Pauls of the world, the, you know, Gary North and some others that are very much like, or Peter Schiff even, like the idea that it has to be physical in order for it to be valuable seems to them like a rationalization or something, or maybe it's because they're bag holders or something. But that seems to be a pattern that we've seen is that younger libertarians embrace Bitcoin very easily. Older ones do not. Why is that? Am I off base here? No, I think you're right. I think there's definitely a generational divide. And I think younger people in general are more willing to experiment and to admit when they don't know or don't understand something. And they're more willing to pivot their positions. I think some of these older libertarians have built themselves a brand and in a way, when they were started being anti-Bitcoin, they painted themselves into a corner. It's very hard to be so negative and present all of these supposedly logical arguments and then say, oops, I was completely wrong for the last 10 years. I do have some sympathy. Like if you're not a computer scientist and you don't have the background and you're not strong in economics or you don't really understand game theory, understanding Bitcoin is not a trivial thing. And the subject of money itself is a very difficult subject, you know, regardless of this extra element where you're trying to create money that's decentralized and has no one controlling it. So I have some sympathy for people like Gary North and, and Peter Schiff, but that sympathy only sort of, I would say, gives them like a couple of years grace period. Like at some point you got to realize, hey, this is still here. This is bigger than ever. Like, maybe I should revisit my thinking on this because if it was a bubble or a Ponzi scheme or something like that, no bubble in the history of the world has burst and then reflated bigger than before and burst and reflated. And just if you sort of zoom out, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's never happened and not for a period of time this long. So, Clearly, there is something here. There's some reason to revisit what I've thought and dig deeper into this subject. But what's really disappointing is they haven't shown that curiosity and shown a desire to figure out where their theories were wrong. And I think that's pretty embarrassing because this is, in my mind, the most important innovation to money in a thousand years. And if you're not willing to sort of revisit the theories that you had and go dig into it. How can you even call yourself an economist if you just sort of roll your eyes and say it's a bubble and then that's all you're going to say about it? It's really, I think, an embarrassment. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It's very embarrassing. For me, it's been extremely disappointing to see a lot of libertarian, older libertarians, you know, I mean, heroes like Ron Paul, I consider him a hero of mine. I, I remember meeting him and everything. Me too. Me but too. at the same time, it's like, why aren't you getting it? Like, are you too old to change your ways? Are you like not, you know, involved enough in the digital realm? And I mean, the grace period is long over for a lot of these guys because they heard about it back in 2011. So is it pride? Is it stubbornness? Like, I think, that, I think they're Luddites. I honestly think they're Luddites. And this, again, it's funny. I tie this back to Murray Rothbard a little bit as well. But Murray Rothbard was a Luddite. 
He refused to use computers. He was, you know, prolific as a writer during the 80s, but he never, ever wanted to use a computer. He wanted to use a typewriter. He never wanted to fly on an airplane. He didn't want to use any kind of technology. And I think part of it is a lot of these older Austrians are Luddites. They're unfamiliar with technology. They don't really understand how it works. They don't want to delve into it. And some of it, I think because of that is fear. They don't want to buy something that they don't understand. It seems too scary to them. But I always tell people like when you're thinking about Bitcoin, if you think it's risky or you don't really understand it, there's a very simple solution. Just change your positioning, the size of the position in your portfolio. If you think it's like the riskiest thing on earth, then own 1% or 0.1% of your portfolio or some trivial amount. But 10 years after its creation, zero is not the number that you have in your portfolio. That makes absolutely no sense. This is clearly an asset that's not going away. And if it doesn't go away, it's going to become increasingly important over time. So have some. But these older guys are just so afraid of it or so afraid of technology that they they don't want to have any or they don't want to figure out how they can get even a tiny amount into their portfolios. Mm. Yeah, which brings me to another thing that I wanted to talk about. Why do libertarians keep losing? Because like, to me, they have the better arguments on almost everything. And I think if you survey people, they say, I'm kind of libertarian as sort of like a way to not be labeled a Democrat or Republican. But it's strange to me that the Libertarian Party is has just done so badly. I mean, maybe they have one representative in Congress and, you know, some Republicans maybe lean a little bit that way and maybe even some Democrats on civil liberties and things like that. But they've just done so badly. What's going on? <laughs> That's a great question. It's oh, it's important to separate libertarianism as a philosophy and a set of ethics and morals and theories about economics to separate that stuff from the libertarian party as a political party because they're two very different things. And this keeps coming back to Murray Rothbard, but Murray Rothbard was one of the founders of the Libertarian Party, and and he thought that maybe we could spread libertarian ideas through the political process. I think the problem is the political process is inherently biased against these ideas. If you want to sort of remove power from the state, then the state apparatus, which you're trying to become part of, is going to naturally have antibodies which fight you and prevent you from doing that. And those antibodies are the bureaucracies within the state, the people who are employed by the state, the people who get welfare from the state. There's a natural lobby of these people who are going to try work very hard to prevent you from getting into power. So I think it's almost an oxymoron to to think about a libertarian political solution because to, to use politics is to use power. And libertarianism is all about reducing the power of the state and giving power back to the individuals. So in, in a way, people who are striving to do that, it, it's almost like Karl Marx who said, you know, we want to have freedom and the social utopia but we first have to form a dictatorship to take power back from the capitalists and then we can have our utopia. It's sort of the same same process almost like libertarians have, like let's get 
in power in the state and will take over the state and then will make the state much less powerful. But the state is, to, to use an analogy from Lord of the Rings, it's like the ring. It's like the, the thing that when you pick up, it corrupts you and it makes you, um, it corrupts your values. And that's true of anyone who goes into politics with very few exceptions. Going into politics and becoming part of the political process will corrupt your values because you have to constantly make compromises and placate people and pay people off and win the support of various lobbies to stay in power. So you have to compromise your your positions and your philosophy and your values to stay in power. So the people who stay in power in politics are the ones who are willing to do that and who are willing to throw away their principles and say, well, you know, well, I'll take some money from one group and give it to the other because that'll help me get elected. So I think the process itself is the problem and thinking that you can solve the problem of the state and its intrusiveness into our lives by becoming part of the state is is a mistake. And that's one of the things I think I learned dipping my toes into the uh, the world of politics during the 2008 elections. Hmm. Well, I mean, that kind of serves as a little bit of a counterpoint, right? Because for a while there, uh, Ron Paul looked really good in the Republican primaries in 2008. And it was only sort of after, you know, uh, the entire Republican apparatus, you know, manipulated things so that McCain would win, that he really, like, you know, he had charges of racism against him and things like that, which which ultimately sort of, like, marginalized them. But for a while there, there were a lot of people that wanted to see him be president. I mean, so is there at least, like, some appeal there to the public for that sort of thing. There's an appetite there. I think So why why isn't that being met? I think there is there's, there's an appetite there's a remnant of people who really want individual liberty. But the the problem is it, I don't think it's quite enough to to make a a big impact to get enough people elected. I'd say we're a very passionate vocal minority, which is why Ron Paul was able to raise so much money. But the majority of people are kind of apathetic and they're okay with having like a, a big intrusive government. I don't have specific numbers, but I'd probably say seven or eight out of 10 people are okay with it. And, and As this crisis has shown, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, of the, the two out of 10, I think only a small fraction are as radicalized or, you know, pro-liberty as people in the Austrian community and people like me and you. So it's hard. It's We're a vocal minority, but we don't have the numbers, unfortunately, to make a big impact. And I think even if we started to get the numbers, the problem is as you get bigger, you start getting corrupted. The process will corrupt you. And not only will the process corrupt you, but this, the state, like I said, has an immune system and it's that's where all the smear campaigns come from. Like you said, Ron Paul was doing well and then suddenly all these articles were written how, about how he was a racist, which is the most ridiculous thing I can ever imagine. I mean, I had dinner with Ron and his wife numerous times. If there was any hint of racism in him, I would have known and it's clearly not. He's like one of the most humble, sweet, loyal, moral people I've ever met. and so. 
it was hard seeing him starting to look like he was doing well and then see these state antibodies come out and attack him and say all these completely false, nasty things about him. And that's part of, you know, the reason I became cynical about the political process. Yeah, you seem to have soured quite a bit on politics. (laughs) What do you think is sort of the an alternative what's the way in which the world can be changed like what's your hope in now since it doesn't seem to be really in politics anymore? well i can tell you in three words bitcoin fixes this Bit- <laughs> <laughs> i like that yeah <laughs> bitcoin i think money is such a foundational part of every modern economy and money has been so corrupted by the state and it's a tool of issuing largesse to people who are politically well connected and it's it's part of the the problem of these uh, special interests having so much power is that they can have money redirected to them really easily. So fixing the monetary system, I think, will have a big impact on the morality of society and, and the moral sentiment of society and will shift people naturally in a direction of wanting less government and thinking more about the future instead of thinking a lot about the present. So I really do believe Bitcoin will fix a lot of problems if it gets adopted as money. So I'm putting all my energy into explaining Bitcoin and helping people get into the Bitcoin world and go down the rabbit hole and and get Bitcoin as a part of their portfolio and start putting their savings into Bitcoin. And how long do you think that'll take? Because in a sense, like in this conversation, I think uh, we've pretty much agreed like a lot of the older libertarians, much less like the older Republicans or Democrats, like they're probably not going to come over to Bitcoin. Like, do we really need them to die off before really Bitcoin can really take off? Or is there some other way in which Bitcoin fixes all of these ills that we're talking about? here? I think that's part of it. I think there is a natural attrition. And I like to tell people like, If you spoke to a group of millennials now, you know, surveyed a hundred millennials, ask how many of the, ask them like, how many of you guys own gold or have thought about owning gold? I mean, it'd be close to zero. I think most of them would give you a very strange look like gold. What, why would I do that? But ask a hundred millennials, how many of them have heard about or own Bitcoin? It'll be a pretty large fraction So I like to say that you can see the future in the present if you have a keen enough eye. So if you're paying attention to what kids are doing today, that's going to give you a good sense of what society is going to look like in the future. So I'm very positive about that. And I I like to think about, you know, how Bitcoin is going to change the world as a a multi-generational thing. I'm very, very bullish on Bitcoin changing the world in the time span of say 50 years so that my my grandchildren will live in a world which has sound money. I'm less sure about the short term. I don't know what's going to happen. And I think at some point, Bitcoin will become big enough and geopolitically significant enough that it's going to face state attack. And the various states around the world are going to see this as a major threat to how they operate and to the current status quo monetary system. And they'll do various things to attack Bitcoin, anything from trying to remove any hint of privacy, so KYCing everyone's, you know, Bitcoin addresses, to outright bans saying that you're not allowed to own Bitcoin, you'll go to jail if you own Bitcoin. So I think somewhere between now and 50 years in the future, we're going to see that. But I'm very optimistic that we're going to get past that and that we're going to have a bright future because of Bitcoin. 
Well, so that brings me to another question. You know, libertarianism is is a lot of things, and there's a lot of ideals there. How much of that can sort of piggyback on top of Bitcoin and influence society that way? Because I think you and I are both, you know, libertarian in the little L sense. What's your take on how much of it can like be Trojan horsed in with Bitcoin to all of these other people? I think a lot of it can. I think, you know, it's such a fundamental change to introduce sound money as the monetary system for the world. And it really changes the way that states have to fund themselves. If a state can't inflate its money, then it can't tax people insidiously. If it wants to fund itself, if a state wants to fund itself, then it has to do it through direct taxation under a sound money system. And taxation has the problem that it has limits. There, there's a point at which a population really gets upset because they can see the money being directly pulled out of their pockets. And so having sound money, I think, is an inher- provides an inherent limit on the size of the state. It doesn't necessarily eliminate the state. I mean, states have existed even under a gold standard, but it really limits their size and scope. So I think that's part of the Trojan horse. I think also that it really, on an individual level, it reshapes people's values. You've seen, I'm sure you've seen this, there are a lot of people who get into Bitcoin and start changing their habits and their lifestyle because they realize, hey, there's this, there's a finite supply of this. If this becomes money, then I want to have as much of it as possible because the 21 million Bitcoin will be a representation of the entire wealth on earth. So... If I can get as much as possible, then that's going to make me enormously wealthy. And so people change their spending habits. They go from living this very high time preference lifestyle where they're constantly spending and, you know, living dissolute lifestyle to saving and putting away consumption to the future so that they can save more in the present. So I think even on an individual level, it sort of Trojan horses those values into people who might not necessarily have those values. Well, I mean, that's great for, I guess, saving and spending less, which are definitely libertarian talking points. But there are also lots of other libertarian talking points, right? Like the legalization of, you know, drugs or something like that, where you have, where you have sort of, quote unquote, victimless crimes and things like that. Like, do those things also Trojan horse in as well? Or is that like a separate libertarian value that Bitcoin doesn't really let in? I think that's a great question. I think the connection is much less obvious, but I think there is an aspect of Trojan horsing those in too. The most obvious way that that happens is that people get interested in Bitcoin, they buy some, it starts going up in value, and then they go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And the rabbit hole is just completely filled with libertarian ideology. And when you go down the rabbit hole, you can't help like bump into every kind of libertarian idea that, you know, has existed in the last 50 or 100 years. So that's one way. The other way is that money just, it reshapes society and people's values. And maybe there's not a direct connection, but you can see as people become lower time preference, they care more about the future. They start thinking about things like, well, if I'm thinking about the future, I should be thinking about my family. What's good for my family? What value should I have that will benefit them in the future? So I'd say the connection is not so direct with the values that you brought up, such as legalizing um, drugs. 
but I think it reorients people and, and the reorientation sort of directionally moves people towards those values slowly but surely. Well, I do have one counterpoint to that because uh, there are, you know, Bitcoin developers who at least in theory should know a lot about Bitcoin, though maybe not the economic side quite as much, who honestly are like anti-libertarian almost. They seem very much, I guess, on the Democrat end of the spectrum or something like that. Like, is it just a matter of time before they change or is it is there something else at play here? No, there'll you know there'll always be a distribution, and there'll always be people who, despite being interested in Bitcoin or owning Bitcoin or even developing for Bitcoin, will have ideas which are on the very far other end of the spectrum. But in a way, I mean, that's one of the things that's beautiful about it. They'll be developing something that is advancing an ideology that they don't even seem to subscribe to and part of it might just be confusion like they don't fully understand the implications of bitcoin they haven't thought through you know what it's going to do to society if it's adopted and if if they really understood then maybe they would be less interested and they might come come at it from a technology perspective and think wow this is a cool technology this is like a peer-to-peer network and i can i can do cool stuff with this network but they don't they haven't sort of delved down the philosophical and political and economic implications of that technology being unleashed on the world. So they're seeing the trees, but they're not seeing the forest. Mm. Yeah, I, it's one of my frustrations is that there, there are people that I, I feel like should be allies, but then they go and, I don't know, like create an altcoin or something, right? Like and <laughs> that, that that's, you know, and it clearly shows where their values were. And yeah, that's another thing I want to talk to you is there there is this sort of like side road, the, this off ramp from libertarian thinking, which is essentially altcoins and all this other crap that people tend to go down. And almost always I notice that once you go down the altcoin route, there tends to be much less libertarian thinking. And could you speak to why that might be? Yeah, I think it's partly because people have sold their soul for money. Like they no longer care about the values. It's just about making money as quickly as possible. And in really the slimiest possible way, which is just to to make something that really has no long-term future because it it's completely centralized. It's like creating it's creating your own fake token, printing a bunch of paper and stamping your face on it and trying to pass it off as real money. It's very distinct difference between Bitcoin and these altcoins. And that's that Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency which has a credible monetary policy. But the people who create these altcoins, I think that deep down they know that, but they're willing to corrupt themselves knowing that what they're doing is, you know, complete garbage. And they're willing to sell that garbage to other people and not feel bad about it. I would personally feel disgusted at myself if I did that. I mean, maybe I could make a lot of money. And there's many times over the last year, years where I could have done something like that. And I'm sure you could have done something like that. But there's something like the, the feeling of dirtiness of like harming other people just so I can make a quick buck that I could never do. But for some people, I don't, I don't know what it is. They, maybe it's some absence of moral lessons when they're growing up or something like that. I I don't know. I can't explain it. But some people are willing to do that. I think they know deep down what they're selling is um, 
dog shit, but they're still willing, <laughs> they're still willing to do it. Well, okay. So I agree that that's true to some degree, right? Uh, certainly a lot of the ICO peddlers um, that knew that they weren't going to create anything or that the token was useless or whatever. I think that's definitely true. There are some others though that are very sincere libertarians. The one that comes to mind is Roger Ver. He, he was very much a sincere libertarian as far as I could tell. But then he does this like Bitcoin cash thing, which is obviously an altcoin. And he intentionally tries to confuse what Bitcoin is versus Bitcoin cash. His brand of altcoining seems a little different. But mm. one of the things I noticed about him is as soon as he got into Bitcoin cash, he started getting a lot more friendly with the obvious scams like Ethereum and things like that. Like, can you explain that a little bit? What's going on there? I don't know. You know, I've spoken to Roger privately a couple of times. I don't know what happened. I think in my mind, a lot of it is just a misunderstanding or confusion about money. And he really thinks that money's first use should be as a medium of exchange. It should be transactional. He doesn't sort of understand that money must first begin as a, a store of value and that people need to value it before they can use it in exchange. I think that's part of the problem. I also sometimes think that I don't believe that he really strongly has these libertarian values. Now, when the fork came about in 2017, most of the people who were involved in that whole 2X thing, they, they called it an upgrade, but we know that was complete BS. Most of the people involved in that, I don't think were libertarians and really they were just doing it because it was good for their companies. The only person that I actually believed their word and they believed in that they thought it was actually a good idea was Eric Voorhees. I've always been a little bit suspicious of Roger, but I, when Eric said, look, I'm putting my word behind this thing, I think it's good for Bitcoin and I want Bitcoin to be able to scale, I believe Eric. I've always had like this sort of hesitancy with Roger about whether he is just full of shit or not. And and part of that is because I think he is willing to actively mislead people and say that something is something that it's not, like to call Bitcoin Cash Bitcoin on his website, I think is outright fraud. And I think that's not something a real libertarian would do. I think a, a real libertarian would not try and win by misleading. Uh, it's just an inherently evil thing to do. And that was part of the reason why I lost faith in, in Roger as a libertarian. Mm. Well, I mean, but you brought up another example of uh, Voorhees who, you know, like, has all of the libertarian credentials. I've, I've talked to him and he, he is very much about, you know, privacy and all the other things that, you know, we talk about and as libertarians. But, you know, he started promoting altcoins and he even launched his own ICO with SALT and things like that. Like, what happened there? Like, is it possible for you to, like, have some values and yet still kind of go off the rails and you know, end up where Eric has. Yeah. And this goes back to what we were talking back uh, about before, where I think the process can corrupt people. And we talked about the political process corrupting people. I think the corporate process can corrupt people as well. When you have business on the line or money on the line, and it, you know, in the short term might make sense to sell something, which is, you know, you know, is not going to be useful very long 
you might just do it because you want your company to survive or you want to make more money. And I kind of, I got the sense, you know, with Eric that he was doing it because it was good for his company. He started getting into these altcoins because he had a company which allowed people to trade altcoins back and forth. And then the more they traded back and forth, the more money he made. If there was only one, if, if Bitcoin was the only one and he that's all he supported, he wasn't going to make any money. Now, I would say that if you care about the long term, Bitcoin is going to be the only one that survives and you want to build infrastructure that will take that into account so that you're successful in the future, not just in the short term. But some people don't think that way. They want the short term profits. And I I feel like he went down that path, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, an unfortunate situation because I really do think he believes in a lot of the libertarian values, or at least did at some point, but seems to have kind of gone off the rails, which is quite disappointing. Yeah. All right. So we should start wrapping up. So question for you with regard to the role of politics in our lives as Bitcoin gets greater. What do you think that will be like five years from now? Like how how will Bitcoin change like personal politics, if you will? Uh, you, you hinted at a lot of the sort of um, value changes that people might see. But as far as, you know, the political process, how will that change? I don't know if I, you know, I mentioned earlier that I saw, see this as changing the world over a, a fairly long time horizon of 50 years. I don't know if it's going to have a huge impact on politics in the shorter term. And I actually think things are going to get worse before they get better. I think the trend in US politics is just so bad and so abysmal and society is becoming so polarized that I, I sort of despair for the future of America and also like the direction that corporate America is going with all this wokeism. It, it really, it feels like it's gotten much, much worse in the last five years. So I'm worried about that. I saw, I see Bitcoin as the light at the end of the tunnel, but I don't think that tunnel ends very quickly. It, it's a, it's a longer term thing. Mm. So in a sense, your view is that, we're going to see more liberties being taken away before Bitcoin really gets to change all of that. Uh, like there's so much momentum going in that direction. Yeah, I think so. And I think as Bitcoin gets adopted, you know, the big wave of adoption that's going to happen over the next 10 years is not going to change people immediately. I think people who come into Bitcoin, the vast majority of them are not libertarian. They're going to come in because they're profit motivated or they don't want to lose their savings in money that's being debased very quickly. So I I think it'll take time for their values to change. And I think owning Bitcoin and having it as a part of their portfolio and rethinking what savings means and rethinking, you know, how much that they want to save and how much they want to think about the future, those things will take time. And I think the reorientation of society is like a multi-decade process. I don't think it's going to happen immediately. I'm pessimistic in the short term, but I'm, I'm optimistic in the long term. All right. So let's take out the time horizon a little further. 20 years from now, how do you think it changes? 20 years from now, I think I see we're well along the path to hyper-Bitcoinization. I think all sorts of things are going to change. I think debt markets are going to look very different. People, Governments and, and corporations will not be raising money through debt markets as much as they do. I think that we'll be in a world where 
Currently, corporations raise a lot of their money in debt markets. I think what we're going to see is that instead of selling debt, people are going to sell equity uh, and people to raise money, for instance, in, in the business world, you'll sell equity in your business. So you'll bring people on board as co-owners of your company, not as creditors to your company. So I think also it's going to change a lot of people's views of savings. I think people are going to be much more savings oriented. I think the rate of savings is going to rise dramatically and that's going to fuel a boom at some point in the future because there's going to be this massive pull of new savings from people wanting to save more and consume less. So when I look 20 years down the road, I see you know an economy that is booming. It's well on the way to adopting a new currency which will be much better for the world. So yeah, I'm optimistic in that 20 to 50 year horizon. Mm. Well, great. Where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter. Mostly I do most of my writing on Twitter. I would love to write more long form articles. I have my article, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin on Medium, and I'm working on uh, turning that into a book, which you, you have largely inspired me to do. You get out there and actually write a book. Mostly on Twitter, I, I have three young kids and a lot of my time is occupied by taking care of them. So most of my thoughts are in short form on Twitter. Uh, and you can find me at real underscore VJ on Twitter. Yeah. And, you know, let me know if you need help on the, on the books because uh, I just released another one. Anyway, thank you for joining me for this episode. I think it was very enlightening. Hopefully, people can learn a little bit more about libertarianism through Bitcoin. Thanks, Jimmy. It's awesome speaking to you. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. VJ can be found at at real underscore VJ on Twitter. Until next time, fiat delenda est.